everyone doing? Good, good to see you all. Hey, is anybody else just tired? I'm, I'm a little bit tired tonight. I think, you know, the new year, it's exciting, and then you get a couple weeks into it, and it's like, hey, it's just about what we did a couple weeks before the new year, right? <laughs> Not a whole lot of changes, but it's exciting. New things are happening. Um, for me, you know, having a new baby coming, I think that's where a lot of the fatigue is coming from. For me, I, I don't know about you, but I know that we all have something going on, big or small. Maybe you don't even know about it yet, but one of the things that we like to do here on Wednesday nights is to join in prayer. So could I get everyone just to st stand up on your feet if you're able? And let's open up in prayer. If you're on Facebook and if you have a need, I would just encourage you to put it in the comments. Let us know what's going on. We'd love to pray with you. Anybody in the room, just signify with your raised hand something going on that you would like for us to join in prayer. One of the most exciting parts about coming together as a body of believers is that we can come together and hold each other up. We can come together and believe in faith for one another. And so that's what I want to do tonight. So let's just uh, open up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have allowed each person in this room and each person on Facebook to join in this service tonight. I, I, I know that wasn't a mistake. It wasn't by accident. They just, didn't just stumble upon what we're doing, but you directed their steps to be here. You wanted them to hear the word that's going to be given, and you wanted them to be able to join with those around them to believe in faith. And I pray right now that whatever's going on in anybody's life, that you would be there, you would help them to know and bring them peace, that you were in the midst of it. You're not some far-off God who just watches us as we, as we go about life, but you're in the midst of us. You grieve with us. You rejoice with us. You are very much a personal God. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, um, how many of you guys are familiar with our food distribution that we do on the second Thursday of every month? Well, tomorrow just so happens to be the second Thursday of the month, and it will be our first food distribution for 2023, and that's pretty exciting. You know, if you haven't joined us for the food distributions before, uh, what we do is we get together, we pass out food, and we generally feed somewhere around 200 families. And that is, that is something that will really bless you. It really blesses me to know that we're able to, to reach our community in such a tangible way, uh, not just what we do on Sunday mornings, but also in a very tangible, physical way as well. So we are always in need of volunteers. If you would like to join us, we will be meeting at the Yellow Jacket Stadium out here off Henderson. We will be meeting there at about 10 o'clock in the morning. If you would like to join us, we would love to have you there. You might say, I don't know what to do. Well, half the time I don't either. So we figure it out together, and I'd love to, love to figure that out with you. So we will see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning if you can join us. But that's not why you're here tonight. You're here tonight because you want to dig into the Word of God. You know, I, I love that we offer a Wednesday night service. Do you know so many churches don't do it anymore? They just don't have a midweek service, and I think it's important. Because going from Sunday to Sunday is a really long time when you're talking about being spiritually fed and being spiritually encouraged. And I think that this is a great pit stop, you know, if you will, kind of come and get your tank filled and then get on through the week. And so that's a great way to look at what we're doing tonight. So Pastor Mike asked me to join in, uh, step in for the next uh, three weeks. He's going to be kind of in and out of the country doing a few different things. And I agreed. I said I'd love to do that. My plan, and I, I use that word loosely, because I've discovered that whenever it comes to speaking and uh, anything that God would be involved in, having a plan is not often the way to go. So my plan is to do a three-week series on prayer, which is a very uh, heavy burden on my heart. Tonight I'm going to start off with that. We will see what the next two weeks encompass. So I'm going to pull out my timer because I tend to talk a lot. Um, if you've spent much time with me, you know that's true. 
So let me pull out my timer, make sure my timing's good. I probably already spent way too long on the announcements, so here we go. But first installment of the potential series on prayer, the pair, the prayer paradox. Now, prayer for me is a very, very important topic, mainly because of the way that I grew up. My dad was a traveling evangelist, and his message. Uh, usually pertained to prayer, especially toward the end of his life, end of his ministry. He would go from church to church, and that was really what he, what he preached about. And he would go and help them to set up prayer ministries within their churches and have prayer, what he called prayer furnaces, which were big prayer meetings like what we do with the Fresh, uh, Fresh Fire Prayer on Tuesday nights. Uh, another plug, if you didn't know that we do that on Tuesday nights at, at 6 o'clock, at 6 o'clock. Join us there. Anyway, my dad would do things like that in churches that had no idea uh, what to do in a prayer meeting. And that was something that I learned from a young age, what it meant to truly pray. And I had the opportunity to sit under him and other great uh, leaders who understood what prayer was. So it's, it's, a, it's a heavy burden on my heart. I believe that I've had some exposure to be able to share some things and also just my own personal journey. Um, but what is prayer? I think that's the starting point. What is prayer? Some of you might say, well, I know exactly what prayer is. Some of you might say, I have no clue what prayer is. I personally believe that prayer is one of the most challenging things to talk about. I really think that it is for two reasons. Either we act like we know everything there is to know about prayer, or we're too embarrassed to admit that we don't know that much at all. Have you ever been in that situation where you are like, I think I should know this, but maybe I don't, and because I don't and I should, I don't really know who to ask, I don't know what to ask. I experienced that whenever I was an elementary school teacher. I was for a short time, it was definitely not my thing. I taught elementary technology, uh, kindergarten all the way up through sixth grade, and uh, try to teach a kindergartner to type, and that will test your patience greatly. Um, that's why I'm now an associate pastor at <laughs> Out <laughs> of church in Cleburne. Um, but no, I did it for two years, and one of the biggest struggles for me was remembering the kids' names. Now, I had kids from all grades, all the way from kindergarten to six, several classes of each. I had a lot of kids, probably about 100 kids, came to me within a week's time, and that was a lot for me. And I would get to know those kids who were a little bit more active in the class. Maybe I would do something with them in an after-school program like robotics or something like that. So I would get to know those. But there were always those kids who just kind of came into class. They didn't talk much. They didn't get in trouble, which I was grateful for. But because of that, I never learned their names. And that was fine at the beginning because the other teachers didn't know their names either. And so we just said, hey, come here and ask their names four or five times. And then I started noticing that the other teachers were knowing the kids' names, and I still wasn't, and uh, they would, I would have to ask the teachers, and the year went on and on and on, and finally I got toward the end, and at that point, you can't ask what the kid's name is anymore. You just kind of got to make it up, and uh, that's kind of what I'm talking about here, that some of us might feel like we, like we should know what prayer is. We don't have some of those answers. Um, on that note, I worked for a pastor some years ago that I noticed he called everybody partner. That was what he did, and I finally asked him, why do you call everybody partner? And he said, well, partner, because I don't remember their names. <laughs> he called me partner, too, so I'm not sure what that was about. But anyway, you know, you learn these little things. But that's the, the, the point being, sometimes we feel like I should know these things, and I don't, so I'm embarrassed to ask. And I think that's what happens with prayer a lot. Now, sometimes we oversimplify prayer, and let me put it this way before I say it's an oversimplification, Sometimes we would say, well, 
prayer is just talking to God, right? Especially whenever we're teaching kids, and maybe they're like, I, I don't know how to pray. Well, it's easy. Prayer is just talking to God. And it is. Don't get me wrong. It most certainly is just talking to God. But is it just talking to God, or is there more to that? Is there some other level to that? I know whenever I was little and I heard that for the first time, I didn't really know what to do with that because I knew how to talk to my friends. I knew how to talk to my parents. Why? Because they're standing in front of me. I can see them. I can interact with them. I can hear them audibly speaking back to me. But when I went and I talked to God, often it was just kind of me talking. Talking to myself, maybe. Talking out loud. And I remember whenever I was little, and, and sometimes, truly, I, I kind of wish that I could get back to that simplicity where I could just go and talk to God. Because now I feel like when I try to do that, I end up trying to answer my own questions. Am I alone on that, or does anybody else feel that way? You know, I'll, I'll put something out there. Oh, I should know that. I, I, I learned that. And, you know, I can't get myself to stop talking long enough where he might be able to speak to me. Whenever I was little, I believed that I could just talk to God. Right? I believed I could just say what I needed to say, and maybe at times I felt like he talked back to me. But now that you get older, you realize, okay, it's a little bit different than just talking to God. Right? Now, I think we have well-meaning Sunday school teachers who, who would attempt to make it more simple. Um, and I really do think that it's a, it's a good way to bring it about. But I think there has to be something more. And a lot of times, because it was a little bit confusing to, to say it's just talking... We would teach kids uh, these little prayers to memorize, right? Nothing wrong with that. Uh, one of them might be, I, I lay me down to rest. Um, now I lay me down to rest. I pray to God. My, uh, my, uh, Sorry, I pray to God to bless me. If I should uh, sleep and never wake, I pray that God my soul would take, which is really kind of a horrible thing to teach a child. But anyway, we, we, we do. I mean, go to bed, Jimmy. Um, we do that. And it's these little things that we teach them, and they're fine. They're good. Even right now, my son, he's uh, 20, 21 months old, uh, little, but he is very much an adult on the inside, I think. And we're teaching him uh, Bible verses. We're teaching him to memorize right now is Psalm 139, 14. I'll, I won't forget that for the rest of my life. And even at 21 months, he can recite that. And I thought about having him come up here. I think that might be a little bit too much for him. But um, he can recite it. He can say it in his own way. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And he'll walk around the house and he'll say it. Can't quite get the words out. But he knows what he's saying. He gets it out. And as we do that, eventually, he is going to have to learn what those mean for himself. We can teach them the words. How many of us know uh, scripture verses that we, we learned whenever we were kids, but maybe we've never taken the time to stop and think about what they mean, right? We learn these things. We repeat these things. They become a part of our Christian walk, but have they really sunk in? Have we really taken the time to sink them in? And one of the things we do with that is, is prayer. And uh, one of the prayers that we've probably all learned very early on, and some people this is the only prayer that they will ever say, is the Lord's Prayer. How many of you right now could recite the Lord's Prayer if I asked you to? You know what? Let's do it for Matthew 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day your daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Now, you might have said it a little bit different because you learned it in a different translation, but I think we basically all said the same thing. We know it. Have you taken the time to really break it down, to think about what it means? Have you heard sermons where they really dig into it, or is it just something that we say? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me and say that the Lord's Prayer is anything, there's anything wrong with it. In fact, it should be taken very seriously because it was the response that our Lord gave when his disciples said, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. If this was important enough to him, for him to respond to that question with, I think it's pretty important to us too, isn't it? But I don't think that Jesus was saying like maybe that well-meaning Sunday school teacher who just said, here, Jimmy, say this prayer. I don't think they were just saying, well... Disciples, I really don't have a lot of time to teach you, so here, here's one you can just memorize and say. I don't, I don't think that's what he was trying to do. I think he was giving a, a, a template or a blueprint of how we can pray. And I, I thought about going the direction of really breaking down line by line by line, and I feel like that could have been done. I feel like it's been done many times. I, I would be very surprised if Pastor Mike hasn't done it a couple times in his 30 years here. So I didn't feel like that was the direction to go. But one thing that stuck out to me the most, that I think is really the core of what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples, was the very first part of that whole prayer. And that is, he says, our Father. Our Father. Now, a lot of times we say it and we just kind of gloss over that part. Again, we say it so many times that it just becomes religious, it becomes mundane, it becomes ritualistic to say this prayer. Whenever I was a chaplain at the VA, I worked alongside a, a Muslim imam. If you're a chaplain in a hospital, whether you're a Christian chaplain or whatever you might be, you end up working with all of the different religions. And It was actually a very cool experience to uh, see other perspectives, not that I believed they were truth, but a lot of times you read about other religions, you don't often get the opportunity to hear them from somebody directly, and you learn a lot about people, you realize that they're more than just that short description in a textbook, they're people who have an experience, and they need Jesus too, and so it was a really cool experience to get to know him, he was a Muslim imam who worked at the hospital with me, but he also worked in a mosque, he was from Turkey, and he had trained in Egypt. And his particular uh, discipline was that he recited the Quran. And so he went to Egypt and he learned under some of the top uh, reciters there. They have a name for it. I can't remember offhand. But uh, they, they, they would recite. And he learned how to memorize the Quran in Arabic from cover to cover. He could recite it if you asked him to, different parts. And that's, that was his ministry. Um, he had some recordings. It was more of a song, and it was very, it was flawless. I mean, I, I don't know Arabic, so I guess it could have been completely made up. But, uh, but you know, the interesting thing was, neither did he. He didn't know Arabic either. He could say it, but he couldn't understand it. And so I, I thought about that later. That in so many ways, it, it that's what we do too. We can recite the Bible, but we don't understand it. We don't know what it means. It hasn't sunk into our hearts yet. And so we, we gloss over these terms that are really full of meaning and full of power. And I think rather than digging into this whole prayer, let's just stop with the very first part, our Father. Now, this exact same verse uh, is actually found in two spots um, in, the, in the New Testament. It's, it's two accounts on the same event 
Luke uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, another place, and Jesus, it's condensed, but Jesus still says, Father. He doesn't say the our part, he just says, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, I believe that Jesus was very intentional in saying this because it signifies an invitation. Jesus is stating that this is not a religious prayer to a far-off deity. This is a personal prayer to a very close father. Now, prayer is an intimate conversation between a father and his children. Now, I hope that you've experienced prayer that way. I hope that you have had times of prayer where you felt your father's arms around you. I hope that you have had times of prayer where you felt like you've gone to God and you have just opened yourself up and he has seen everything that you are, everything that you've done, everything that you have ever walked through. But I have to wonder if that is the common experience for everybody in the room because that is not a very comfortable thing to do, even to our creator. That is something that's very difficult for us to do, to be raw and transparent before God. But truthfully, that's what prayer is. A few years ago, I I put together a series of podcasts and some blog posts of my own personal journey through prayer. I called it The Art of Prayer. And uh, I started off by talking about how whenever I was little, I didn't understand what prayer was. And I talked about how they had said it was talking to God and all the things I mentioned here before. But one of the things that I, I, I broke it down to saying, I thought prayer was a skill. That as I get older and as I pray more, I get better. And maybe that sounds funny, but let's think about it for a second. If you want to go to someone for prayer, are you going to go to the person who stumbles over every other word? Are you going to go to the person who prays with confidence and with with passion and they pray? We, We all know the person who prays with eloquence. Do you know what I'm talking about? They just pray really, really, really well. And I'm not knocking that. That's great. There's some people that are just good communicators. But we often see it as a skill. The better I get, the better at prayer I am, the closer to God I am maybe. That's at least how I saw it. But as I got a little bit older, I realized prayer's not a skill. Prayer's an art. There's an art to prayer. Because, and this is how I explained it, I can learn just about any skill if I apply myself to it. I don't have to have a passion for it. I don't necessarily have to uh, have a desire for it. I just have to find the right resource to learn, sit down, take the time, practice, practice, practice. I might not be good at it, but I can learn it. You know what I can't just learn is art. Because art is not about the technique so much. It's not about the skill involved. It's about something inside of you coming out into what you're doing, and that's not something that you can force to happen. If you've ever tried to write poetry or write a short story or write something that would fall more into the arts, it's not something that, hey, I'm gonna gonna sculpt a sculpture today. No, it takes something inside of you coming out. I remember uh, reading a quote by Michelangelo. They said, how do you sculpt such beautiful statues? And he said, I don't. I just release what's there from the marble. Now, if you're not an artist, that makes absolutely no sense to me at all because I'm not an artist. But to that artist, there was something in there. He saw it before it was there. That's what prayer is. It's me expressing myself before God. It's very different than just learning a new skill. 
But prayer's not meant to be pretty. It's not meant, it's meant to be messy. It's meant to be a place where we tear down everything and let our creator see us for who we really are. A few weeks ago, I guess months now, I did a four-part series, and I, uh, I kind of went the whole way through in the Garden of Eden. And I talked about how Adam and Eve, when they, uh, when they sinned, they were face-to-face with God, and they had the opportunity to come clean. Right then, they, they could have said, here we are, we, we look at we, what we did, this is who we are. Instead, they covered themselves up. Prayer is the opposite of that. Prayer is the opportunity to come face to face with God and we expose who we are to him. Because he already knows what's there anyway. I always wonder, and we could talk about this forever, and I'm not basing a whole theology off of this, but I wonder what would have happened if it was even possible if Adam and Eve would have been transparent with God in that moment. I think the problem was that they couldn't connect with him anymore because they felt the need to cover themselves in their shame. Prayer is the opportunity, the invitation of a father to his child to come and and, and present all that we are to him. Let him heal us. Now, you might say that anybody could do that, right? But let's look at our text a little bit closer. By beginning the prayer with the word father, The answer would appear that no, not just anybody can pray. The answer would be that children of God can pray. That the invitation is to children. If he's he's starting the prayer off with Father, then that would seem to imply that the children of God are the ones who can pray. So we have a little bit of of a provision there. But who are the children of God? Now some might say, well, it's everybody. We're all created by God, therefore we are all children of God. Who, who would believe that? I mean, that's a pretty good statement, right? If God created us, we must be his children. But there are some who aren't his children. And we see that in John chapter 8, verses 39 through 44. Now, to give a little bit of context here, um, a group of Pharisees had already come and they had accused someone of adultery and they wanted to have this person stoned. Now they're coming to Jesus and they're questioning Jesus. And Jesus essentially, and a, and a few more words in this, but essentially says, who is your father? And they answered and said, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if, Abraham, if, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, if you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father, they said to him. We were not born as a result of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came forth from God, and I'm here, for I have not even come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot listen to my words. You are of your father, the devil, and you want the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth. Now, goes to show, there is another, there is another father, right? Now, when, when Jesus says, our father, we know who he's praying to. But there are some who are not in that boat. Not everyone is a child of God. The fruit of the person determines who their father is. Now, I want to be clear on this. We don't always act like we're supposed to, right? I know growing up, there were times that my parents probably didn't want to claim me as their own child, but I was. There's a difference between not acting like the child and not being the child. 
It doesn't mean that every single thing that we do has to reflect God's nature for us to be his children. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that is the only condition that there is placed on our salvation. And yes, there will be moments that we don't act like we're supposed to, but who we are are children of God. There are others out there who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They don't act like it. Maybe they do act like it sometimes, but they are not children of God because children of God are those who are born again by the Spirit. Um, so prayer is not for everyone. It's only for the children of God. God answers the prayer of the righteous. Now, this is an interesting thing that I want to point out in a couple scriptures here. Psalm 66, verses 18 first says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their, their cry for help. So, kind of supports what we're already saying, right? God answers the prayer of the righteous. His ears are toward those who do the will of God, right? That's, that's what the verses say, so we, we kind of get that. But I want to throw a little bit of a curveball in here, and I want to go to Daniel chapter 9, verses 18. <clears throat> he says, My God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our pleas before you based on any merits of our own, but based on your great compassion. Seems a little different, huh? The first part says God only answers the prayer of the righteous. If there was sin in my heart, you wouldn't have heard me. But then on the other side, we have Daniel, and he's saying, God, we're not appealing to you because we're righteous. We're appealing to you because of your mercy. A little bit of a, a difference there. One might call it a paradox, and that is the paradox of prayer. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, you might say, well, what is a paradox? What is that? Is it two docs? Sorry, that was, that was kind of a pun. Um, so I, I have to tell this. In the youth group, just so you know, they no longer refer to dad jokes. They now refer to Devin jokes, I found out today. And I've got to tell you, I couldn't be more proud. <laughs> Pastor Mark texted me today, and he wanted me to send him a Devin joke because they have a wheel back there that they spin, and there's prizes on it, and there's uh, consequences, just kind of a fun game. And some of the prizes are he'll get them DoorDash to, to, uh, to drop off food here. But one of the consequences was that they have to tell a Devon joke to their friends. So he asked me to text him a Devon joke today, and I found a doozy. i got to tell it. I know this is really off topic, but I have to tell it. Do you know what E.T. is short for? Because he's got really tiny legs. Anyway, back to prayer. It's a paradox. A paradox, as the dictionary would define it, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So it's something that at, on the onset seems like it doesn't line up. If you ever just had two things that just don't line up. We usually call those things a contradiction, right? If I said, I'm going to go to the store, but then I went to uh, the post office, I contradicted myself. 
right? I said I was going to go one place, and I didn't. But a paradox is a little bit different because it seems that way. But if you dive in and if you investigate and if you search, you'll realize, as the definition states, it may be explained or proved to be well-founded or true. So in the end, you find out that it's not a contradiction at all. So there are numerous paradoxes in Scripture, numerous. Here's a couple that I found that I thought were good. Blessed are those who hunger, Matthew 5, 6. You don't have to pull these up on the screen, by the way. No one who comes to, you, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, John 6, 35. A person is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3, 28. A person is justified by works, not by faith alone. James 2.24. So one says by, by faith alone. The other says by works. Uh, the next one, uh, my yoke is easy, which is Matthew 11.30. Matthew 7.14 says, how difficult the road that leads to life. So there's already some contradictions there. A couple more here. Everything is futile, Ecclesiastes 1.2. Everything is meaningful. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And the last one here, test me in this way, Malachi 3.10. Do not test the Lord your God, Luke 4.12. So on the onset, these seem to be blatant contradictions. And in fact, these are some of the things that get people very caught up if they've never really taken the time to study the Bible. And you'll hear people say all the time, I can't trust that book. It's full of contradictions. Well, really, it's full of paradoxes. Because if you dive into any one of these, they have answerable answers to any objection that's made. So, what do you do with a paradox? Well, when you're talking about Scripture, I'm going to give four steps here today of what you can do. These are just kind of a side thing. We'll jump back into the content here in just a moment. But the first thing you want to do is gather the data. Gather as much data as you possibly can. How many times is this referenced in Scripture? What are the different things that seem to be competing? Get as much data as possible. Look for obvious answers. So, you know, just looking at this real quick... I can look and see already the first one. Blessed are those who are hungry. No one comes to me will ever, be hung, will ever be hungry. I almost wouldn't even consider that to be a contradiction because it's basically saying, come to me if you're hungry and I'll feed you and you'll never, you'll, you'll never need food again. That's a very obvious answer to that. Another one might be, uh, or the next step would be consider the author and the recipient. So, I'm thinking about the, the passage from Ecclesiastes. It says everything is, is futile. Everything is meaningless. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians says everything is meaningful. Do everything to the glory of God. Well, the first place that you look is in Ecclesiastes. Solomon is at the, toward the end of his life. And he's saying, I've wasted everything. I, I had anything you could imagine. Money, all of that. Nothing. I didn't ever want for anything. I'm telling you, all of that is meaningless. He was saying, my life is meaningless. But you see, from him, the part that was missing was the God center that had left a hole in his heart because it wasn't there. It, I'm sure it did feel meaningless. Paul, on the other hand, has filled that hole with the gospel message, and he's saying, no, everything is meaningful, and everything you do needs to reflect what's inside of you. Those aren't contradictions. Those are two different people with two different walks of life. One who was, uh, I'm not going to go as far as to say a sinner, but lived a sinful life. I don't know how he ended up for sure, but he lived a sinful life. And then you have one who was a born-again believer. That's the, the, the paradox of it. Seems like a contradiction. 
but it's really not. And then lastly, seek biblical definitions. Seek biblical definitions. The Bible defines itself better than anything else ever can. I use uh, dictionary definitions sometimes to kind of help us to understand in our language, but you know what? The best place is to go and say, what does the Bible say about these things? So what we can do here today, what do we say? God answers the prayer of the righteous, and he answers the prayer because of his mercy, right? Well, let's look here. What does the Bible say about righteousness. What does it say about righteousness? Could spend probably years talking about what the Bible says about righteousness. Let's take one text since we don't have that kind of time today. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf. Now, what does that say right off the bat? That our righteousness is like filthy racks. Our righteousness is like, uh, it, it, it's, it's detestable. It's, it's something that we want to just push away. And there, there's really deeper meaning here too. And I'm not going to expound on this too much. But if you look at what Isaiah actually meant when he said those words, it actually pertains to menstruation. And I'm not going to belabor that point. I'm not going to go into a lot of stuff on that. And before you send emails to Pastor Mike talking about the inappropriate things that I've talked about, just remember Isaiah said it first. And if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, it was the Holy Spirit, so take it up with him. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But the idea here, and I really believe the reason why this was used to talk about uh, righteousness, is because if you understand that concept, you see that, the, 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 the human reproductive process is a miracle. It's a miraculous thing. But there have to be certain conditions met. There has to be a merging of certain cells in order for it to happen. And if that doesn't take place, life is not produced. I believe that the reason why Isaiah referenced that is because when it comes to our righteousness, it's one-sided. We're doing all the work. We're doing everything to produce life, and we simply can't because we're missing one essential element in the process, the life-giving power of Jesus Christ. I believe that he's using that because he's saying your righteousness is the unfulfilled potential of life. It's what could have been, but because you didn't get the right essential portion of, of, of Christ in you, that righteousness never met the level of where it was supposed to be, and it's useless. It's wasted potential. It's what could have been, and you chose not to let it be. On its own, it is absolutely void of the miraculous redemptive work that we know when we come together with Christ, and that righteousness then has the ability to go to that next level and produce life in a miraculous way. I think that's what Isaiah was, was saying. I think that's why he used that illustration. The unfulfilled potential of life, void of one essential life-giving element. Our righteousness on its own is, the, is, is only one part of that miraculous process. While just saying that the filthy garments is, is repulsive and all of that, I, th I think it captures one dimension of what Isaiah is saying, but it seems to miss the embedded message that our Righteousness is the wasteful, wasted remains of an unfulfilled potential. Creation fall, failing to achieve that which it was created to do, unable to produce life on its own efforts. Now, what's the takeaway? 
what does he say? No one's righteous. And scripture even says that. No one's righteous. And I love the way it follows up. Nope. Almost like you were going to interject and say, but wait, no one's right. Nope. Not even one. Nobody. No one's righteous. If God only responds to the righteous, who does he respond to? Our search for truth takes a new turn. If God responds to the righteous, to whom among us does he respond? It would appear that no one can be heard by God. Yet we see countless examples in Scripture that would challenge such a conclusion. How many of us know people at the, at the end of their life, at the end of their, uh, their walk, they, they pray a, a, a prayer of desperation and God answers. We know that God answers from the abundance of his mercy, not just responding to those who are righteous. Now, I believe that Jesus' parable of the prodigal son lays a framework for understanding how to make sense of all this. And I... I'm not going to belabor this point tonight. We're kind of running out of time. But um, one of the things that I do want to point out tonight, I know that I uh, tend to stay in the prodigal son story a lot. If you've heard me speak on Wednesday nights, I've probably referenced it 90% of the time. And I hope you don't get sick of hearing it, but I, I, I thought about this the other day, and I really do mean this. If I was given one hour to spend with somebody on death row, and I was given the opportunity to, to share the gospel, this is the story that I would use. Because I truly believe that out of every story Jesus taught, really out of the New Testament it, itself, this captures so many elements of the gospel message more than anything else does. And I, I really, that's, that's why I focus in on it. And I would encourage you to dig into it if you haven't before. I can say this with 100% certainty. I have never read the prodigal son story twice and got the same thing from it. There is so much packed into it. I highly encourage you, if you've never studied it, to do that. And I, I am going to read it here because I do think it lays a, a very good framework for what we're talking about. You find it in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the world, in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen, to, to citizens of that country, who sent him away to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. And I'll stop there. I'll paraphrase a little bit. So he gets this idea, hey, I can go back to my father's house as a servant. Because the servants ate better than I'm eating right now. I can't go back as a son. And I, I won't get into a whole different sermon that I preached on this of, of, of that son uh, servant. I identity crisis but that is kind of what's happening here is he gets this idea I can go back as a servant because my father treats his servants well and so he went back home and he was expecting to have to grovel at his father's feet but we know if you've read that story it's not what happened the father saw him from far on and he sprinted out he gathered him up and he treated him probably better than he had been treated before he left which is crazy and just ridiculous but that's the grace that we have that's the mercy that our father has for us and he took him in as a son but something i really want to point out here today is the way that the son came in see prayer is a pathway 
Like the prodigal son, we have all left our father's house, squandered our inheritance, and found ourselves eating with swine. But when we humble ourselves and come to God as servants, that's what I want to touch on tonight. Prayer is coming to God with a servant's mentality and being received as a son. And I know if you heard me talk before, you're probably thinking, well, that's kind of the opposite of what you said before. You should come as a son, and you should. But you should also come as a servant in the way that you approach. And you'll be received as a son. Not only does he accept us, but when he sees us approaching, he runs towards us. Jesus set the example for us when he said, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. What Jesus did, being the son of God, Being that identity, being God in nature, he humbled himself. He became a servant for our sake. In his humility, the father received Jesus as his son, and and we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We We have been received, and we've received salvation that's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal that he promised in the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the glory of God. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 14 through 16 says, For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So that is how someone becomes a child of God. By receiving Christ, who was received initially, and the Holy Spirit bearing witness to that. We become God's children through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us by the Son as we received his gift of salvation. And follow his example in humbling ourselves and acknowledging our need for a Savior. When we came to Christ for the first time, we came and we humbled ourselves before him because we knew that he was our only hope. We came as servants. We came as servants expecting to be received as servants. The way that we approach God doesn't change. We need to be humbled in that way. But we know that the way that he receives us is as his own children. Now, the second part of the prodigal son shares a a little bit more light on that. The older brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants to begin inquiring, what's going on? So here he's saying, what's happening? I hear all this noise. And the servant says, well, your brother's back, and he's throwing a party. And he became very upset by that because he had never had a party thrown for him. He approaches the, the father, he complains about it, and the father says, but you've, you've never asked for that before. James 4 verses 2 says, you have not because you ask not. You see, that son was a son, but he hadn't gotten out of the mindset of a servant. And because of that, he couldn't ask his father for the right things. When we have the mindset, when, when we are received by the father, and we still have the mindset of a servant, then our prayers are ineffective because we don't ask. We don't think that we can go up to our father and ask for things. That's what James says in chapter 4. Once again, we get this idea, this paradox 
of a servant and son and this constant tension, this constant back and forth of how do I sit in this tension? How do I do both? Well, Jesus in the garden actually gives us the answer to that paradox. We know that Jesus, toward the end of his life, he had asked his disciples to, to wait and pray, and he went to a place by himself, and he began to, uh, began to grieve what he knew was coming, the cross that he knew was coming. It says so much so that he sweat drops of blood because it was such a stressful situation. He went to the, it was his habit to, to go off on his own. And he got down and he, with, uh, he withdrew from the others about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And yet my will, uh, let, and your will not mine be done. That is the servant-son paradox in play. Because no servant would have been bold enough to say to his master, take this away. But at the end of, the, at the end of that prayer, Jesus also acknowledged that he was a servant by saying, but I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. That's how we have to approach prayer. We have to approach prayer by knowing we can come and we can ask anything from our Father. It's not... We don't have to come and, and, and kind of stammer around. We don't have to try to figure out how to, how to word it. No, just come and be honest. Be ex- express. What do you want? The older brother wanted a party. He could have just gone and asked his father, but he didn't. We can do that. We can go and we can ask our, our, our God of anything. But it doesn't mean that it's going to happen the way we want it to. That's where we, we, we step into the place of a servant and we say, God, your will not mine, your will, whatever you choose to do, however you choose to do it, I'm humbling myself before your greater wisdom, I'm humbling myself before your greater plan, because you know, I I watch how my 21-month-old son wants things that I know he can't have. He got upset the other day because he couldn't get in the oven. And in that moment, I just felt God say, that's you sometimes. And I thought about it, and I was like, you're absolutely right. I want to get in the oven, and I don't understand why I can't. And it's those moments that then you can step back, and you can, you can say, okay, God, I get it. As a, as a 30-year-old man to a 21-month-old son, imagine the, 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 how much different it is between God and us. And the things we ask, he's like, no, no, you don't need that. You don't want that. Just trust me. That's what Jesus did when he said, but your will, not mine. This is what I want. This is what I want. But your will, not mine. My son knew he could come and ask his daddy to get in the oven. He knew that he could. But he also trusts me that I'm going to keep him safe. So maybe this isn't an issue for you. Maybe you're very comfortable sitting in the tension between being a son. And and I say son, I use that term very broadly, a child and a servant. Maybe you understand your role as a child of God and come to his throne with humble confidence. And so that you you praise, praise the Lord for that. Too often I talk to people who are still in a servant mentality. I talk to people who have not encountered that that fatherly love, that moment where the father ran and embraced him and gave him more than he had before he left, that doesn't make sense to most of us. And if you haven't experienced that, I I pray that you do because that's what this whole thing is all about. 
Until you walk out of that mindset, you'll never walk into all that Christ has for you. So let's talk about humility for a moment. Let's see it from a different way. I'm going to present humility from, from a twofold perspective. Humility is intellectual, right? We must humble our thoughts to be captive to God. Experience is an excellent teacher, or so the saying goes. In reality, experience can be very deceptive. I talked about that one in, during that four-week uh, series as well. If you have ever looked into a dark corner of a room, you're bound to see something if you look enough. Not that anything is actually there, but we expect it to be. You've probably heard the phrase, seeing is believing, but unfortunately, perception is not reality, and your experience is not always to be trusted. Did you know that an eyewitness actually has to, and I don't know if this is across the board, but in certain cases, they have to identify a person a second time on a different day, because often even eyewitness accounts aren't always trustworthy. Many faith groups that emphasize miracles, healing, signs, and wonders have developed a theology based on what they've seen, or in some cases, what they've heard others have seen. And this is not to say that every instance is false. doesn't mean that that stuff doesn't happen. But we have to proceed with caution when trusting our experience. If what we believe is not an, isn't, isn't in alignment with the Bible, then we must humbly submit to the authority of Scripture. But on the flip side, there's experiential um, humility as well. God may choose, and he most probably will, to operate in our lives in ways that we may not initially understand or in some cases be comfortable with. We must humble ourselves to the one who has the right to do what he pleases, however he pleases. This may mean that you, that you hear of and possibly even see things that might be outside your understanding and maybe even what you understand of Scripture. In 1995, I've mentioned this before, my family went to the Brownsville Revival. And there was a lot of stuff there that even the leadership today would acknowledge was not right, that it shouldn't have happened, but there was a lot of stuff that was. There was a lot of stuff that was very godly, people repenting, uh, true repentance. Much of that was simply people putting boxes around what they thought should happen, and when things happened outside of it, they said, well, that can't be right because that doesn't fit inside the box I've created. But there's an experiential humility that says, you know what? We serve a big God. And God may choose to do things in a way that doesn't feel comfortable to you. God may choose to do things in a way that kind of upsets what you have, have put in as the barriers of what you'll accept within the faith. I'm not saying that's always going to happen, but it might. And if it does, we need to be able to come to God and say, look, I'm not comfortable with this, but I'm open to whatever you choose to do. When we pray, we need to be able to say, God, I'm willing to whatever you want to do because God may be calling you to step out of your comfort zone. He may be asking you to do something more. He might be asking you to grow. Now, I'm going to change that. He is asking you to grow because that's the whole point. You know, we don't just make a decision on a Sunday morning to serve Christ and come down on the altar to go back out and just do life the same way. If all you're doing is coming in here on a Sunday morning, hearing a good message, then going out there and there's no change in your life, I question the fruit. Because that's what scripture would say. We have to grow. And when we grow, it's not always going to be comfortable. This is the prayer, par the prayer paradox. As children of God, we are invited to enter into a deep and meaningful communion with our Heavenly Father. The result will be a process that changes us pushes us, grows us, and at times makes us uncomfortable. Maybe the discomfort 
comes from the searchlight that penetrates the very depths of our soul. Maybe it's the steady call of our Father drawing us back from the edges of the latest fringe theology that we've embraced. Or maybe it's a coaching father pushing us to step out of the bleachers and get into the game. Even if we have to stretch our understanding of the very nature, of his very nature, in order to play our position. Whatever it is, when we encounter his proposition, this decree from our king, we cannot let our sonship turn into the attitude of a spoiled royal brat. We must embrace his direction with the heart of a servant, unquestionably following his spirit and going deeper and deeper than we ever thought we'd go. Are you ready? Are you ready to step into those things that might not be comfortable? Are you ready to step into the areas that are going to grow you? And let me tell you that we are never too young, too old, too experienced, too inexperienced to grow. We all have the opportunity because we are all in this room, I would trust, just based on those that I see and I know, born-again believers who have committed to this life of sanctification, of this life of change, we can't sit still. If we've been the same for a long period of time, it's time to grow. It's time to move. It's time to be uncomfortable again because we will be until we get to heaven where we'll have comfort. But until then, we're growing. I'm going to close in prayer tonight, and what I want to do is a couple things. The first thing is, if, if the first part of this paradox applies to you, that still trying to work through approaching God as a child, still trying to see God as your father, as that father running, running and sprinting down to embrace us and lavishing the most prized possessions on us, which is exactly what the Bible says God has done for us. I'm going to ask you to, to, to pray with me tonight, but the other side of that would be the invitation that maybe you've become very comfortable with the prayer part of it, with asking God whatever you want, with God just kind of being that celestial uh, fairy godmother, giving us what we want, but we don't actually have to, have to grow in it. We don't actually have to step out of our comfort zone because that's easy to do. I think, I think all of us at one time or another have been on either side of that spectrum. So are we still the servant mindset or are we the royal spoiled brat over here who thinks they can get whatever they want? That's the part that we have to grow through. So tonight I'm going to offer those two invitations. So let's all pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. And it's not necessarily an easy word. It's not necessarily something that we want to hear. But it is something that challenges us to, to look at prayer differently. To look at prayer and say, this is not just something that I do to get what I want. It's not just something that I do because it's what I'm supposed to do. It's not just something that I do because, well, that's what Christians do. But it's an invitation that you are offering us to step into a deeper relationship with you. And I pray that you would help us as we begin to pray to see it differently. To see it from the perspective of your children. To see it from the perspective of your, uh, your, your heir, the heirs to your throne. I pray that you would help us to be bold in our requests, that you would help us to, uh, to be that prodigal son coming home and asking something outlandish that we never, we, we never had the right to ask, but we did, and in that you receive us as your children. I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not experienced that life-changing, transformative power of the Holy Spirit that turns us into your children, 
I pray that right now there would be something that stirs within them. That they would be so uncomfortable staying where they are that they would have to grow. They would have to embrace that. They would realize that they have a loving Father in heaven who is waiting for them to come home. And I don't just mean that for salvation. I mean that even those who are in the, in the family, that they need to step into the identity that you've called them to. And on the other hand, I pray that for us who get very comfortable praying, who get very comfortable making our demands, who get very comfortable with our list, with our, with our petition, that you would help to remind us that we are really nothing more than filthy rags without you. I pray that you would humble us, that you would keep us in the mindset of knowing that we come to you and your way goes, you're the king, we're not. I pray that you would help us to be more in love with you every day so that the things we ask would be in alignment with you. I pray that you would help us to grow and to not be comfortable. I pray right now if there's anyone in this room who has been in the same spot too long, they just need to grow. I pray that your spirit would, would just give them such a prod that they would want to move and grow into all that you have for them. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, this will be the first part, two more weeks with me. I hope to see you back. And if we don't see you on Wednesday, um, I do hope to see you on Sunday. So we'll see you then. Thank you guys. Mm-hmm.